0: Welcome back. This is Mark Steiner, right here on your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. And welcome back to the Mark Steiner Show. And Soundbites, it's Thursday. This is our weekly look at our food, our environment, our energy, and our future uh, here on the Mark Steiner Show. And... um, we want to hear your thoughts, so please do call in. We talk about the, these issues affecting Baltimore City right now at 410-319-8888. You can tweet us at Mark Steiner. Uh, shoot us an email at org. We begin our program today talking with Mitch Jones, um, uh, a sen- senior policy advocate at Food and Water Watch, about the rise in water and sewer rates in Baltimore City that's caused such a controversy uh, at the Board of Estimates hearing, where citizens really stood up across the board um, saying we can't afford, especially poor people, to have our sewer rates, water rates, right raised, uh, and this and the board of estimates voting a majority with uh, one, I think, dissent vote yeah. from the comptroller, uh, Joan Pratt, saying no to the to the to the rise in rate. So welcome, good to have you with us, Mitch.
1: Thanks, Mark. It's good to be here again.
0: So uh, talk a bit about this. You the 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 a lot of what you heard was a very one of the, one of the testimonies I heard there was a very tearful testimony from a woman who said she lived in. His house, it was a family house. She's worked all her life, but all she has in her life is his house and not much money. And what this, this, what we, what, what some people might consider not a huge, a burden, but is a burden.
1: Yeah. Well, first, let me begin by congratulating you for once again winning uh, best in Baltimore <laughs> from the city paper. Thank you. Um, you know, I think that for for many of us, water bills are more of a an annoyance than they are anything else. But for a lot of folks living in Baltimore trying to pay your water bill is a real burden. The reason for that is because water rates have been going up. In addition to the most recent increase, we just had a 42% increase in 2013, and now we're having a 31% increase in uh, voted on in 2016. So you can see water rates are increasing rapidly. But in Baltimore, you know, 25% of the city's residents live in poverty. Based And on, uh, when you say that, yeah, can I just make it like a
0: quick... Right. When we use that number, we're still using, when we define poverty, we're still defining poverty by Linda Baines Johnson's 1968 definition, not the definition that really exists, right. which means actually more people live in right. poverty yeah, exactly. than 25%. Exactly. I always have to throw that out. Right.
1: Sorry. No, good, good. We should always be reminded of that. Right. Um, and on top of that, um, my, my colleague Mary Grant, who is a brilliant researcher on this issue, um, did some research that showed that one-third of Baltimore City households under the u n the United Nations definition of what is affordable water one third of Baltimore city households cannot afford their water based on that United Nations definition, which is based on a percentage of your household income so wow. it is a major what, problem wow. yeah third? a third a third so and that was before the most recent rate increase so what we 're talking about here in Baltimore is a real crisis, especially for lower-income households and their ability to pay these ever-increasing water rates.
0: Folks, do join us. I want to hear your thoughts on this. I mean, it. it our listeners in Baltimore City and Baltimore County are affected by this rise that's correct. in water rates. Baltimore City passes it, but because the county uses water that's controlled by Baltimore City that comes out of the county reservoirs that are owned by the city, county water bills are affected by this as well as cities. So join us here, 410 319 which is an interesting kind of twist. Yeah. On, on all of this. That's right. But what what so it really is a conundrum. What is the city to do? Yeah. I mean, they have an infrastructure rebuild, which we'll be talking about in the next segment that's connected mm-hmm. to this. But the reality is is that the, the they don't have the money to do what they have to do.
1: That's true. So this is a a multi-layered issue. Um and it it really begins in a complete failure of Congress and successive uh, presidential administrations to act at the federal level to fund our water and wastewater infrastructure. Um, funding for water and wastewater infra- infrastructure actually peaked in 1977. So think about that for a second. That's almost 40 years ago, and it has declined on a per capita basis. The federal level of funding that flows out to the states and then to the cities and counties, counties. and municipalities. Mm-hmm has decreased on a per capita basis by 82% since 1977. But at the same time, obviously, we're seeing a, a real need to replace not only the water mains, but the sewer pipes to get rid of lead service lines, as we've seen in Flint and elsewhere. And because the federal government has failed to provide that assistance cities are being forced to look elsewhere. And that's why I think we're seeing these sorts of water rate increases. Now, I mean, one thing I would say about water rate increases is is that, you know, we at Food and Water Watch don't actually have a knee-jerk opposition to water rate increases because water infrastructure needs to be paid for. We have a solution at the federal level. It's a piece of legislation that was introduced by Congressman John Conyers of Detroit called the Water Act. And that bill would actually... Uh, eliminate an offshore tax loophole, raising anywhere between sixty and a hundred million dollars a year for the federal government, and it would earmark—or sorry, billion dollars a year. It would earmark a billion, billion, a billion, billion. That's a, yeah, <laughs> that's, a huge that's a big difference. That's a huge difference.
0: Now that makes sense. Okay, yeah, hundred billion. Right. I don't understand, but that, yeah, right, so right. so
1: it would raise a hundred billion roughly a year. Really, and thirty-five billion of that—that that just shows you how much the corporations are getting away without paying every year. Thirty five billion of that would be earmarked for our water and wastewater system, which is the minimum that the EPA tells us we need to be spending every year. Uh Mr. Conyers introduced that bill earlier this year. Um it's been gaining um uh co sponsors. I'm uh you know, I would love to be able to say that Baltimore City's uh members of Congress have signed on to the legislation. They, they have it. not. They have not. They have not, they've been asked to. Uh um, none of them? No.
0: Not Cummings, not Sarbanes, not
1: No. Not yet um you know but that's a real solution it would provide the funding that every state and locality needs to to fund their their water and wastewater system but in the meantime cities obviously are as you said they're in a conundrum they need to fund their water infrastructure uh not only upkeep and repairs but upgrades the problem is that with the rate increase here in baltimore what we're seeing is that it's going to impact lower income users, households, more than it's going to probably impact higher income. And that's because of the way that the way the the increase has been structured so that although it's a uh, 9.4% annual increase between now and 2018 and a total of 31%, right? That's the, the kind of headline number. If you're a household that uses half as much as the average household water per year, you're going to see your water service bill go up 55%. If
0: you, uh, okay. Okay.
1: So if you're a low water user. Right. Right? Say you live in an apartment, you don't have a lawn, you don't have a car to wash, whatever, you're, you're you know senior citizen. You don't use as much water. You're going to see a 55% increase between now and July of 2018 in your water bill. If you're a household that uses twice as much as the average household in Baltimore uses— you're going to see initially a 9% decrease under this rate structure that has been passed next month. You'll see a 9% decrease. And then um, by the end, you're going to see just a really small total increase in your bill. It's going to be if – if, yeah. if
0: you use more water, you're going to be charged less money?
1: You're not going to be charged less money, but you're going to see less of an increase in your overall bill –
0: so, if you're using less water, you're going to see a greater increase in your bill. Yes,
1: as a percentage of the bill that you're currently paying, you're going to see a larger that increase. A
0: little <laughs> skewed,
1: it's more than a little <laughs> skewed, Mark. It's completely <laughs> skewed, um, and it's Family Radio, so, so the, I won't describe it the way I would so normally. What's do the it, logic but... to that? You know, it, it's hard to say. The the way that they're that they're structuring the the rate increase is the the actual amount that you're paying. You know, we always point out, it's, you're paying for the water service, not the water. We actually own the water already. What we're paying for is the service, but you're charged on a volume basis, right? So how much water you use determines how much you, you pay. That's both for water and for sewer. What we're going to see is that the, the volumetric rate, that's what that's called, the volumetric rate for water is actually going to decrease for drinking water, right? And because we're changing... We currently have a, a rate structure where the more water you use, your rate goes down, okay? So if you're a high-volume water user, the way it's going to work out is you're going to see your water bill dip and then come back up, whereas if you're a low-water vo- volume user, you're just going to see an increase. The reason for that is because the sewer rate is going up, so the the per volume that you're paying for flushing your toilet, essentially, is going to go up. And at the same point in time— the city is instituting some new fees, and those obviously are going to hit everybody equally. So if you use less water, a larger percentage of your bill is made up of the fixed fees than is made up of the actual usage of the of the service, right? The running your faucet, right, 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 flushing right. your toilet. So it it is going to adversely affect or impact your bill in such a way that you're going to be paying more. And I'll just say one last thing about this, which is that if you're – you know, there there is an income, uh, there is a discount for low income senior citizens. That discount isn't going to apply to the fixed fees, so there will be some low income senior citizens in the city and the county who will actually potentially see their bills double by July of 2018.
0: And if you're on a fixed income, let's say Social Security, yep, and that's what you're living on, mm-hmm. which could be thousand dollars a month, maybe less mm-hmm. if you're lucky, more,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and so you take another two hundred dollars out. That's huge. Yes. That's a huge bite out of somebody's ability to live. Right. So let me. I'm going to hear the solution part again to this and go back to the federal end. But let me go to the phones first at 410-319-8888. James, you're on the air. Welcome.
2: How you doing, Mark? How you back?
0: Very well. Welcome. Good to have you with us.
2: Uh, Mark, I'm a homeowner in the city. I've been owning my home for probably about 33 years. and the And the water rate has been constantly going up. I would say basically since, since the 1990s, maybe about 10, 15 years, it seems like because of the uh, citizenship being low and people leaving out the city and all these vacant houses, so you have to pass the uh, cost on to the people that own the houses. Basically, it's using some type of intimate domain on the water bill to where we can charge you what I want. Now, most of the years I've lived here by myself. Mm-hmm. and constantly the water bill minimum charge 250 a month. I check with my neighbors. Everybody's paying the same thing on one side of the street and then on the other side of the street they pay a different bill like I'm paying one twenty, two twenty five. Across 225 Cross the street is paying 125 So it just seems like the city's saying well we don't have the house, people not in the houses. We, we need the money, so we have to pass it on you know, as a minimum charge because we can do that. That seems like fraud to me. And then, the, like you say, the guy said to pay for using less. So I try to use less of I can. So now I might as well just try to use more to keep my bill down. <laughs> <laughs> and then right this, i would take the hose and wash, wash the car for about an hour to, to, to try to get the bill down so, but it uh, just so, seems like a lot of fraud to me mark it's just saying right. like we, we charge you what we want and there ain't nothing you can do do about it and then, like i said every i'm on a, a fixed income myself i, I retire but um now, the water bill is told to go, they say you get a water bill this month, it last one for the cycle. I just paid a water bill in July. It ain't been three months. And now I'm going to go to the next one. Then you got three new fees on it. So it's not, it's not helping. You already had the uh, soil bill. You always had the Chesapeake Bay, the right. stormwater, and now you're going to put some more in there. So that's just recuperating money, make the bill higher. Especially so, if I was paying 225 for three months, then I'm going to be paying probably 300 for three months, It's due to two twenty-five. It's all a game to them.
0: It, it, it is. It does feel like it's a game to them, James. And I'm, I'm glad you kind of ran it down the way you did and really delineated the entire story because I think you've you, you hit the nail on the head, Mitch.
1: Yeah, I mean, you. you know, obviously here in Baltimore we've had you know additional issues with um, meters not being read properly. I mean, I was uh, I received one of those outrageous bills where it was like, well, look if I had used this much water, I would have had an Olympic-sized pool in my basement, <laughs> which, you know, I don't even have an Olympic-sized pool-sized basement. Um, well, they calling
2: that a minimum charge. I mean, well, man, you ain't got to use this much. This is what we charge.
1: So, Thank you, James. Appreciate it. really do. So, you know, a, obviously, you know, there have been additional problems with the Baltimore uh, water metering, which, you know, we've all been given these new meters, which is supposed to fix the problem. One of the things they are doing is eliminating that minimum usage uh, charge uh, in the new billing, but there are going to be new fixed fees, which is the reason why it's going to you know impact lower income or lower usage households. You asked briefly earlier about about the solution, so there are two. I want to you know obviously the federal the Water Act, uh, John Conyers' bill at the federal level is hugely important because it would provide the federal assistance localities need, but in the meantime. You know what we need here in Baltimore, and what we at Food and Water Watch have been calling for, is an income-based water service billing uh, program, which would limit the percentage of income that lower-income households would have to pay for their water service to keep it in line with this idea that the United Nations has put out that you know there is a certain amount of your monthly income or your annual income which above which if you have to pay, water is no longer affordable. And so we've right. been working to um, to introduce an idea for an income-based water service billing plan. Um, Cong- Councilman Bill Henry um, actually had has uh, called for a hearing on water affordability in Baltimore. My understanding is that will be happening later this fall, um, and it will be held at such a time that folks can come out and testify about you know exactly what James was just talking about so that the council can can act and we hope at Food and water watch that um, you know either this council or the new council that will be taking over in December will you know institute an income based water service billing program so that so that folks here in Baltimore can afford to pay their water bills people want to pay their water bills mark people don't want to not pay their water bills so you know we're hoping that will happen and then at the same time that Congress will finally step up and act and Pass the Water Act so that the funding that localities, not just Baltimore but across, whether it's Flint or Detroit or Newark or a small town in Idaho, it doesn't matter. All localities need help paying for their water infrastructure and the Water Act will help fix that problem.
0: So let me try to get a, a, one call in here and and read these and read a couple of tweets. Pete Johnson has tweeted in you should ask DPW if you have them on, which we should do, which we will, we'll ask them to come on, why they won't release docs justifying rate increases for free. And also retweeted in, billing isn't just by volume, it also varies by size of service pipe to the address. That is true. Which is a really important point to make, I think, and I appreciate that tweet, P. Um, And um, let's go to the phones here, 410-319-8888. Chala Siddiqui Owens Mills, you're on the air. Welcome. Uh,
3: Thank you, Mark, and I really appreciate the guests you're having today. Um, many years ago, and i don 't know if it 's the same uh, as it is now, uh, Germany and lots of other countries had sort of a dual system, so you weren 't using your toilet to uh, flushing your toilet and using fresh water. They would have uh, potable and non potable water systems, uh, certainly in public places and in lots of homes as well. I, I don 't see that as feasible anytime soon in this country, but would that help the problem at all?
1: That's an interesting question. Um, You know, I think in the short term, there would be, as you say, it's not feasible in the short term because you would have to essentially create some new infrastructure to make that work. Um, You know, Baltimore's existing water infrastructure, and this is true across the country, um, is set up to utilize the drinking water in the sewerage or the, the clean water system. And I think, you know, it would require vast... Uh, amount of investment now that doesn't mean that down you know down the road it couldn't be done, but it, you know in the we had I believe it was 800 water main breaks in Baltimore last year, right? And I know you're going to talk about sewer overflows in the next segment, but you know I think for now the investment needs to be focused on on fixing those problems, upgrading the system, and while having that dual system could be a good for environmental reasons as well um you know the investments now are dealing with the backlog and building out the the additional infrastructure you would need for that is something that you know is not going to be f- as as the caller said feasible in the short term but is probably you know something that would be worth looking at as a long term uh, Change to the way, especially when you're building out new systems. So, I mean,
0: what we'll try to do here, and uh, is in, in in the coming weeks, to bring on DPW and city officials, along with Mitch and some other community people, to have this conversation. Maybe Mitch and Kim, Kim Chuhart to have this conversation on air uh, to, uh, to 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 really flesh this out and, and see if we can't help the city come up with a better system than they have, and also maybe talk to our congressmen and figure out why they're not backing or if they plan to back, I should say. Yeah, that's right. If they plan to back Conyers' bill. Uh, Ms. Jones, Senior Policy Advocate for Food and Water Watch. Uh, Great to have you in the studio once again. Thank you so much, my friend. Thank you, Mark. We're going to take a very short break. And after this break, we look at the other aspect of this, which is the Baltimore sewage infrastructure and how Blue Water Baltimore is going to be part of that and how this all fits together, because it does. Stay with us. Welcome back. This is Mark Steiner. Good to have you with us here on the Mark Steiner Show. And sound bites. Our weekly look at food, the environment, our energy systems, and our future. And uh, we continue this discussion because what we're about to talk about now with the infrastructure of Baltimore is directly connected to our, connected to our water. Uh, no pun intended. You cannot pun intended. You cannot disconnect it. Uh, and what's interesting is that Blue Water Baltimore, one of our leading advocacy groups in the city around this issue, has now forced the issue in federal court. Uh, that they will be part of seeing that the plan to redo our infrastructure was implemented. Rebuilding infrastructure of Baltimore is supposed to be done to tw- by 2015. It was not. It's not been pushed off. Uh, and now this watchdog group will be part of seeing how that's done. We're joined in the studio by Hallie Vandergag, who is executive director of Blue Water Baltimore. Good to have him in the studio, Hallie. Welcome.
4: Thank you for having us.
0: David Flores is with us. He is the Baltimore Harbor Waterkeeper. He's done this before. Good to have you with us, David. Thank you, Mark. And you all can join us here at 410-319-8888. You can tweet us at Mark Steiner. Send us an email to talk at org. Get on to our Facebook pages. But if you can, call in 410-319-8888. The infrastructure issue is huge in this city, as we all know. uh, And in the constant water main breaks we're having all through Baltimore and the holes in our streets and more. So, Holly, talk a bit about this lawsuit or th- that you all did and, and what the significance of this is here?
4: Sure. It's actually not a lawsuit. i what, what it is How is you that, describe it then? Um, we basically are now parties to an existing lawsuit. But you had
0: to go to federal court to get that status, right? We did.
4: And the reason we needed to do that is that the city was seeking an extension, and therefore the case became open again because the court had to approve the extension. That, uh, according to the Clean Water Act, gave groups like ours an opportunity to request to intervene— Um, which the judge has granted, which means now we are a party to the case on the side of the plaintiffs, which is EPA, Department of Justice, and the Maryland Department of the Environment, and the city is the defendant in that existing lawsuit that um, was put in place in 2002. Um, And many, many cities are under water consent decrees because um, it was clear that uh, there was far too much sewage in the streams, um, and the federal government forced that issue in many cities, particularly in the East Coast.
0: So, so what does that mean for you? I mean, so what exactly? Pardon me, excuse me. What does that mean that you all will be doing with and for the city over the next? What is it, fifteen
5: years? Well, that's yet to be seen, right? So, in the in there's a proposal. David Flores, thank you. Yeah, there's a proposal before uh, that was lodged with the court back in June that would extend the final deadline for the city to comply with the Clean Water Act. This prohibition against sewer overflows to 2033 and so as part of that process there was an opportunity to submit public comments Our organization, along with the Environmental Integrity Project, submitted several different comments. We were joined by over 1,200 individuals, uh, including city residents and other organizations, in one of our comment submissions, and other groups as well have submitted comments. So right now we're looking to the agencies, frankly, to justify what's in this proposed modification, not just the extension of the final deadline, um, but really the, the planned remedial measures, what projects are called out for in the consent decree, uh, that would achieve compliance with the Clean Water Act and, and basically eliminate sewer overflows and backups of sewage into pe- into people's homes. So,
0: what what is it for you about what the city's saying that doesn't m- meet muster?
4: Sure. Well, one of the things that we're concerned about is the document doesn't actually require the city to make water quality improvements. Going to spend over a billion dollars, and under this current document, and we hope this will be revised. That instead of just tracking pipe progress, we want to see that the water quality is actually improving. What does that
0: mean? But uh, but pipe progress versus water quality? So, um,
4: this current consent decree is very sort of process oriented. It says you will fix this problem by this date, and there's a number of of dates within the document. What it doesn't say is when you replace those pipes, that the water is actually going to be cleaner, and we're going to hold you accountable for cleaner water. Um, we researched over twenty consent decrees across the country, and we 've seen in a number, including cities like Cincinnati, where water quality endpoints, as we call them, meaning the water must be cleaner, is included in consent decrees and we 've also seen that when cities are held accountable, they get there faster so that 's a really big sticking point for our organization is we want to see that the water's cleaner, and we also to david 's point, one of the things that 's really come to light is over five thousand people in Baltimore are impacted by Volumes of sewage in their basements, and it's not just the streams. When we have five
0: thousand people, five thousand homes,
4: five thousand homes. I'm Yeah, I'm yep, sorry, right. that's a significant number. And unfortunately, remedial work that the city did—they um, spent three hundred fifty million dollars closing sewage outfalls that have contributed significantly. They shouldn't have closed certain pipes, and they did that. Um, not necessarily great engineering, and that is really responsible for a significant amount of overflows in from the public system into people's homes. And part of why we looked to intervene was we felt strongly that someone needs to be representing the citizens in this instance, not just for water quality so we can recreate on the harbor, but so that people are not facing what is, frankly, a public health concern and a financial nightmare for people who need to remediate this. And oftentimes these are happening in low-income homes, um, and people are even losing their homeowner's insurance through multiple backups. So it's really a problem that spans beyond just water quality in a healthy harbor. It's about protecting public health and making sure that homeowners are actually getting the remediation that they deserve.
0: So a couple of things here that I think are really important to kind of wrestle with. And folks, do join us at 410-319-8888. Perhaps you are among the 5,000 homes uh, in our community who have been affected by these overflows. That was part of the testimony yesterday, uh, the other day at Board of Estimates around um, the rate increases for water. People were testifying that the idea that people whose homes have been flooded in their basements with sewage because of the water main breaks should not be charged the increase in water because of how they were affected by that, which I thought was an, an interesting kind of proposal. But we'd like to hear from you at four one zero three one nine eight 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 eight. You can email us to talk at steinershow.org. Uh, you can also tweet us at Mark Steiner, 410-319-8888. But when we say when you say that the that not great engineering i think was what mm-hmm. you said so so how does that play itself out and and who's responsible for that and how do you how do you just change that par- part of the process that mean you have to bring in outside consulting engineers do you have to hire new engineers i mean wh- how do we know it was bad engineering and what does that mean
5: so it it, w- it wasn't necessarily bad engineering it was engineering way out of order um, and so we have a sewer collection system in the city that is distressed, that is deteriorating. And a lot of the work up front that needed to be completed, cleaning sewer lines, fixing failing lines, um, still remains undone. Uh, What the regulators had the city do under this 2002 consent decree, which is still under effect, is to first close off relief pipes that would discharge overflow into our waterways as the initial step. And that really came too early in the process. The work of fixing the pipes and expanding capacity should have come before closing those sewer pipes. Um, And so what they did is they closed those sewer pipes without addressing this hydraulic capacity issue in the system. And so the sewage just overflows further upstream. And from what we understand from the city and what they've communicated to us is that, as a result, that sewage is sometimes entering into people's homes. So I mean, but I mean, this is the question I've had, and I've thought a lot about this,
0: and kind of read about this over the years as well, and done a number of shows on this issue over over many years. Now, the sewage system that we have in Baltimore uh, was really built in the first part of the 20th century. 1920, you 1920, know, after the Great Fire in 1904, so the sewage system was being built then. So we're talking about an infrastructure that is really an aged infrastructure. Yeah. Like many older cities, it's falling apart. So, I mean, the, the, the part of what I was thinking about in, in terms of what um, uh, Mitch Jones was talking about in terms of the uh, water issues um, is that how can a city that has a real... Minimal ability financially to take care of itself and the needs of its citizens already, all the issues education, housing, and more, afford this. I mean, sure. that, I mean that's, that, 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 isn't that part of the issue?
4: Absolutely, and it's a daunting task. I mean, there is a huge amount of infrastructure work that needs to be done, um, and relative to rate increases, we we definitely recognize the cost here. Our concern is that there hasn't been a tremendous amount of transparency and openness about what has been collected so far. So it's very hard to say this much money has come in through the collection since 2002 and through these rate increases. What work has been done um, and what work needs to be done in terms of justifying the rate increases? That is not something that we have seen. We have certainly asked for that kind of information. And so, again, part of our role as... um, an intervener in this case is we now have different rights to be able to ask those questions and hopefully get answers. And if we don't get answers, we can actually go to the court and indicate that we're not getting information. Because we think that the rate increases may or may not be justified, but unless we really understand what has happened before, what's been paid for, um, because a lot of money has been raised. A lot of money has come in through taxpayers. um, And so where exactly has that been spent? And we're looking forward to more financial transparency, um, even a potential audit of what has really kind of come in and what's it been used to pay for.
0: So what you're saying is is that the, the, is it $315 million, they said, has been mm-hmm. spent on the infrastructure so far. Am I right about that, $300 No,
5: more than that. So $350 million was spent 50. To, clo- to close these sewer overflow relief pipes. But okay. they've spent in excess of that overall for the consent decree. So, and you're are you saying then, but
0: citizens, you don't know, we don't know, citizens don't know how the money was spent, just what was spent on, um, and what it really did. And then how much was raised during that same period of time. And which is what, how you were just saying. Right. Let me open the phones here. What do our citizens and listeners think? 410-319-8888. Uh, let's go to Kenneth. You're on the air. Welcome.
6: Hey, Mark. Hi. How you doing? Very
0: well. Good morning, Kenneth.
6: Yeah. Well, you know, I've been on your show before. uh, uh... In the past, talking about the quality of the water, particularly in public housing in which I live, I live in public housing, I'm over here um at the chase house um and I've been trying to tell him that did. I think there's lead in the water. I've had someone from the Baltimore City Water department young man came in and he said uh, it's uh he can only get a faint reading, but uh he thinks it's probably lead in the water also." And then they came in, painted my tub, which had lead in it. But the quality of the water, they gave me a Culligan, uh, what do you call it, a Culligan machine to put on the on the on the faucet. And I was wondering why they were doing that, you know. But I haven't used it, and I haven't drank the water since then. Uh and then I have to heat my water when I take a shower, and I mean, you know, when I take a bath or whatever, right, right, So but that water is, I mean, I know this water is uh, contaminated. Uh, there's no doubt in my mind I have a, a doctor's uh, letter uh, saying that I was diagnosed with uh, bronchitis and uh, some other type of disease. I don't want to talk about that on the phone right, right, right. on the on the air. And so, uh, you know, people are trying to uh, cover this thing up, but uh, I'm trying to fight it back by myself. So if there's any lawyers listening, I can use you. Uh, I was trying to get that lawyer that they had last time about the harassment. Uh, But anyway, I just wanted to
0: let you know. I appreciate that, Kenneth.
5: How would you comment to Kenneth about what he just said? Right. So I don't know a lot about this issue. We don't focus too much on drinking water. Um, uh, We're mostly focused, obviously, on our waterways and and the sewage and the stormwater and other sources of pollution that impact them. From what I understand is that uh, the drinking water as it's conveyed from from drinking water lines, publicly owned lines in the street to homes to apartments, that segment is a source of potential lead pollution to to drink to, for folks who are drinking city water uh, that hasn't been well, well monitored. And it's not necessarily the city's responsibility to monitor that, but it's something that hasn't been uh, studied comprehensively or extensively throughout the city. And so – um, yeah, absolutely, I think if, if folks are concerned about lead in their drinking water, they should um, try to find resources or if they have the resources to hire someone to test it for them.
0: Let me go back to the phones at 410 319 Angela Davis, you're on the air, line one. Hi, Angela, you're on the air, welcome.
3: Hi. Hi, Angela. Um, uh, I, you do, I'm so glad you have this show. Um, Thank you. When I'm not at home... And I'm away working for a month and I come back, my water bill will be the same as if I'm, there's people here. And uh, I've called, this has happened three times over the years. And I call and we fight and then I have to call back and then I talk to the next person up the food chain. Long story short, I always get my money back. But it's like. What I say to them, what do you mean nobody was in my house for two months? What, why am I being right. charged, you know, this amount. Anyway, so, I want people to really look at their bills, really look at your bill. And the other comment for that guy about, yeah, we're all getting lead poisoning, you should get one of those breed of water filters because even though the reservoirs are pure and clean, it's coming through our rusty pipes in the city. Thank you very much. Angela, thank you
0: so much. I um, come back to the infrastructure question, because we did talk a lot about that in the last segment, but they really are connected for people. Um, you know, uh, the, it's all about our water. Uh, Nico tweets in, uh, DPW needs to be more proactive with our infrastructure when patching out roads. Fix the pipes when the roads are open. What about that? How does that fit into this?
4: So I think that's a really good point, and the city is moving towards being more comprehensive with across agencies, Um, when we're building a road, there's a lot of things we can do, including stormwater and green infrastructure work. Um, You're going to open up the street. Let's open it up and get the efficiencies of doing multiple work. And that that counts for utility work as well. I think, um, again, I think there's improvement there. There likely is additional improvements that could be made. And I will say, um, observationally, we do find that the departments work in silos for the most part, um, and that uh, between leadership and coordinating. Um, I think there's room for improvement. I'm certainly hoping our new mayor is going to come in and have that as a mandate. Um, we see that al- across a lot of the work that we do, whether it's planting trees or installing green infrastructure, is we think that there needs to be more cohesive interagency coordination, um, and we'll support infrastructure and other city goals.
0: 410-319-8888. A tweet coming in. Nicole set in. DPW is putting paint Putting paint on poo instead of fixing and rebuilding, also employ Baltimoreans instead of sending those jobs elsewhere. That's a big piece for people in Baltimore too. Is if we're doing this infrastructure work, it seems to me whether it's trained work or whether it's laboring work, that that could be a priority.
4: Sure, the city um, is obligated under local hiring laws. We don't focus too much on that. What we do see is that um, the city needs to increase staffing in a number of areas. They've shared that with us whether it's on the wastewater or the stormwater side. um, We do see that there is a lot of economic activity around. I mean, these these infrastructure projects are huge. A lot of the contractors and a lot of the design firms, unfortunately, are not located in Baltimore City. There are a lot in Baltimore County, and so those jobs, um, you know, what can we do to address that? What can we do to entice more contractors um, and firms to be here in the city so that the folks that are doing that work are really from Baltimore and benefiting the tax base as well.
0: So in the time we have here together, I really want to kind of focus a bit on, on what this future means for Blue Water Baltimore and working with the city and how that's going to fit together. I'm sure there's a lot of resistance to this on the, on the part of the city. They don't, often the, these agencies don't like oversight from outside the city. So how is that How is that going to play itself out, do you think? And how do you think, what are your thoughts and ideas and plans?
5: Right, so as I mentioned before, we're we're really sort of an awaiting pattern at this point to hear back from the agencies on their proposed consent decree. Uh, they the, have to respond to public... And the, public the
0: consent decree exactly says what?
5: That they have to complete the work to eliminate sewer overflows by 2033 and come into compliance. And
0: wh- how does the consent decree... What does it say about your participation in that?
5: Right, so the consent decree doesn't say anything specifically about us. We're a party to the court case that underlies the consent okay. decree, which is basically a settlement negotiation. And the court, it could be court enforceable as well. Uh, so basically, the court case stays open until the consent decree is finished, until we meet the final deadline. And the court finds that the city has complied with all the terms and requirements in the decree, and they're complying with the Clean Water Act. So right now, we're, again, as I mentioned, we're waiting to hear back from the agencies on our public comments. Um, you know, for the past several years, continuing through today, and for the foreseeable future, we are con- we are going to continue doing things to assist the city in detecting uh, and finding sources of illicit sewage pollution to our streams through programs like our Outfall Screening Blitz, where we train and work with volunteers. We have almost 300 now that we work with to go into our streams, to use testing kits to find sources of sewage, and to report that information to the city so that they can follow up, find the sources, and eliminate them And then additionally, just as a community organization and through our pollution reporting work, uh, we receive pollution reports from citizens all the time, often for sewage issues, and we go out and investigate them and coordinate with the city for their response.
0: And, Hallie I'm just curious, as the leader of this organization, I mean, what what does that mean that you'll be doing? I mean, what... Sure. Um, How much pain in the butt will you be here? (laughs) I'm just teasing. Um, Well, you
4: know, not to put too much on what comes back, but we are certainly hoping that the regulators are going to make some changes um, to the document that maybe um, addresses a number of these things, certainly addresses one or two of the priorities. So knock on wood that the regulators will have listened to, you know, what's a pretty technically sophisticated um, set of comments. Um, I do think that uh, this is a long-term investment for us. We recognize that with that type of horizon, while this current director of DPW may be doing a fine job, um, what happens in the next transition? What happens in the next election? What happens when I'm not in my seat? Um, And so really what this status does is it preserves that citizen role for the long term. So we think that this is a a victory for our organization. We've worked really hard at this. Um, it was no means guaranteed. Um, we appreciate that the judge did hear us and that the the verdict was positive. And the other issue that the regulators did say, well, we're not going to oppose Blue Water Baltimore's intervention, but what we're going to do is seek to limit their role. What the they judge said that yes. Um, their filings in court basically reflect that they would like us – when we say a seat at the table, are they wanting us to be at the kids' table? Um, <laughs> and so, Put you in the kitchen. Right, right. We don't want to be at the kids' table um, because we sort of have this unique skill set around the technical, right. the scientific data collection and – we're really the only group that's kind of in the streams and and frankly on the streets looking at this. So, while well, we don't necessarily just want to be a pain in the butt, we really want the resources. I, just, I shouldn't have said it that way. That's is okay. It, is, is, um I get called plain. that often, but um <laughs> we uh really are hoping that our expertise is helpful in solving the problem and we think that again that long-term investment needs to be there.
0: So, it really means is before we take this break, that you have to I mean, this is really about a a pushing the envelope and pushing the negotiations on this with incoming administration more than anything else.
4: Absolutely. And we think um, we've had uh, the incoming administration has been receptive to the concerns of community members. They have been open to working with us on this, and we hope that will carry through. Um, and I think that the other kind of point here is there's a significant amount of work that needs to happen between now and, and 2020 um, to really deal with some significant problems, including a major overhaul of the Back River Treatment Plant, which, as David's point was earlier, the engineering was basically determined that that feeder pipe that's heading across the city to that treatment plant was misaligned. So we literally have a 10-mile sewage backup at any given time. And when we have high-intensity storms, which we're having more and more because of climate change, that pipe system basically backs up, and that's why we see all the overflows. We're excited that the city is on track to complete that project by 2020, but we certainly want to be there To make sure that that happens.
0: Well, as citizen watchdogs, I'm glad you are there. And we look forward to having these conversations a lot over the next few years to kind of just see where this is going and you keeping us abreast of this and having this dialogue on the air and wherever else we can have it.
4: Great. Well, thank you. We look forward to that.
0: I really look forward. I really appreciate the work you all do. Hallie Vander is executive director of Blue Water Baltimore. David Flores is Baltimore Harbor Waterkeeper. Uh, And we'll be linking to the consent agreement and things on our websites, both the Soundbite website. And the Sounder Show website, you can uh, follow up on that and see what that's all about. And we will be following up on this. Hallie and David, thanks so much.
4: Thank you. Thank you.
0: We're going to take a short break. Bonnie Raindrop joins us to look at uh, this really interesting what happened in Baltimore County, I mean, Annapolis County, the City, to protect honeybees and other pollinators. Stay with us. Welcome back. This is Mark Steiner here on The Mark Steiner Show and Soundbites on your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA, 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. And The Mark Steiner Show and Soundbites brought to you in part by MeQ, Baltimore's Credit Union, offering a full range of financial services. MeQ, Baltimore's Credit Union, is helping its members and its community prosper. When you invest in yourself, MeQ invests in you. More information at www.mecu.com. Or at steinershow.org is MeQ, Baltimore Credit Union's banner. We're joined now by Bonnie Raindrop, who is legislative chair for the Central Maryland Beekeepers Association. Bonnie, good to see you again. Welcome.
7: Hi, Mark. It's great to be here.
0: Y'all can join us here, 410-319-8888. You can uh, email us, talk at steinershow.org. Tweet us at Mark Steiner, 410-319-8888. So this is, well, let's talk about a couple of things here. One is what just happened in Annapolis. Yes. Uh, and, and it was pretty interesting that they chose to kind of regulate um, uh, the, the the sprays you can use. So talk a bit about what happened.
7: Well, um, this year in, in April, uh, the Maryland legislature passed a first-in-the-country bill to limit Uh, insecticide sprays and products that had neonicotinoids in them. Neonics is sort of the short term for it. But these are a neurotoxin. They're a systemic pesticide. They're different than other pesticides, and they are tied to our massive bee deaths that we've been experiencing around the world. So our legislature took a great step forward. Unfortunately, this doesn't go into effect, though, till January 2018. So bees in Maryland are still under quite a huge amount of assault.
0: So, And what happened in Annapolis?
7: Well, in Annapolis, um, they passed a really wonderful um, resolution. Anne Arundel County, Annapolis, and Highland Beach decided that they would resolve to reduce or eliminate the use of harmful pesticides, including neonics to try to protect beehives. And they're also doing a public education outreach on the importance of honeybees and how citizens can help them. So we love seeing that and would like to see more local cities and uh, jurisdictions do the same thing.
0: How does that play itself out though? What does that really mean? What what just happened there, what effect would it have and what does it mean you can and cannot do?
7: Well, when the state law goes into effect... There's about 300 products on shelves that we go into big box stores and the like and purchase with no idea that what we're buying to make our gardens beautiful is actually going to kill the bees and all the other beneficial insects. So it's this uh, latest initiative in the local government of Annapolis is taking it a step further to say they're going to start right away and put a plan into place that will help bees and reduce the amount of neonics that are coming into the system. And we still see that, you know, plants, uh, and most of the plants that we buy, we have no way of knowing whether they have been pre-treated with this terrible toxic chemical that kills bees. And um, we were part of a, a, a study in 2014, and it was completed again this year, to see how many garden plants that people are buying are actually treated. We did see that the situation has improved across the country, in 2014, over 50% of the bee-friendly plants had already been pre-treated with this deadly chemical. And now we're looking at better numbers in the 20, I think 20-some percent. And that's because citizens have um, signed on massive campaigns targeting Lowe's and Home Depot and some of the other retailers to say, we don't want to buy this stuff, and we want you to take it off the shelves. And it's, it's working.
0: So... I mean, can localities believe? I mean, because localities can pass these bills, but they can't stop folks from going to Baltimore City or Baltimore County or any other place from buying anything they want to to spray for their lawns, right? Right.
7: But there's a lot of municipal property that's being uh-huh. managed. And so if they're making a commitment that they're not going to treat, and they're not going to spray, and they're not going to buy plant stock that's been pretreated and sprayed, it's really a step in the right direction. And it's it's a leadership position. It's it's important that they do that. So
0: let's take a step backwards again for a moment here, because I think that we've covered this a lot over the years, but I don't want to assume that everybody understands exactly what it is we're talking about here um, and why this becomes so critical, uh, the role of honeybees and pollinators and and the and the, and the effect they have beyond just uh, people's lawns and flowers.
7: Oh, yeah. I mean, we kind of lose sight that one out of every three bites of food we eat has to be pollinated by a natural pollinator. So it's all the fruits and vegetables. Um, it's, it's even the grasses and the, and the alfalfa and clover that our meat animals eat Uh so it's it's critically important if we didn't have pollinators to pollinate our food we would be relegated to a very you know just you know a few grains that would be it and we're hearing farmers testified in maryland uh, at the legislature that you know the natural pollinators that pollinate their crops for free like uh, bumblebees pollinate tomato plants that uh, some of these farmers didn't have the yields that they should have had, dramatic decreases because they didn't have the natural pollinators in their fields. So we really, really depend upon these insects to feed us. And they're dying at alarming rates. Um, Maryland lost between 50 and 60 percent of its bees for the last three years. How do we know that? We know that because there's a survey that's taken that beekeepers, um, and they work through the USDA and the Bee Informed Project, and they report how many hives have died and what the conditions are where they've experienced that death. And we have seen overwintering deaths that are uh, being attributed in part to exposure to neonics over the course of the summer and fall. We're also seeing summer kills, where the time of year when bees should be flourishing, they're dying. And we've had new reports, new studies coming out all the time that are showing that the wild pollinators that are doing this job for free are dying at the same rates of 50%. So we're really in a crisis right now, and it's going to affect the cost of our food, the availability of it. It's a food security issue that we're facing.
0: And that's, I'm, I mean, it's, it's, about, it's on so many levels here. I mean, it's about the future of our planet, future of our earth it's about our children it's about the food we eat and yeah. it's also about the 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 these small beings we're talking about called bees and pollinators i mean it's, yes. you know what i'm saying it's yeah. it covers all of that yeah. uh, so and i you know when you and when we think about this and i and and the kind of stuff because people can look at this and go oh, what are you talking about it's just you talking about bees and flowers when we have all these issues of poverty but it's all really directly connected yeah. together and
7: especially issues of poverty because food prices will increase when yields are down, it's supply and demand, it's going to become more expensive. And that means that, you know, the people who can least afford to absorb that are going to have poorer and poorer quality of food, less choices.
0: Uh, we didn't get a chance to get into this one piece I want to get into, but very quickly, maybe for the yep. last 30, 90 seconds here, is, uh, is, is the battle between spraying for Zika virus— and the pollinators.
7: Yeah, it's really a serious concern for beekeepers because um, this the sprays that are being sprayed, um, the synthetic per- permethrins, pyrethroids, they will kill bees, all pollinators. And there's no system in place to warn beekeepers so that they can protect their hives. So it's it's deadly to the bees. It's also not great for humans. And the CDC has said that this spraying for adult mosquitoes is the least effective mosquito control t- method.
0: And so what we're going to do is, Bonnie, I'm going to invite you back pretty soon. This, this Zika and spraying thing is going to be a, it's, it's a serious issue in discussion. I want to have just a segment on that and have you back to talk about that. Love to. So always good to see you here. Thanks. So right, Bonnie Raindrop is legislative chair for the Central Maryland Beekeepers Association. And I want to thank you all for being part of this program today. The Mark Steiner Show and Soundbites are productions of the Center for Emerging Media, made in, p- in part by a grant from the Town Creek Foundation. Our senior producer is Mark Gunnery. Our producer is Amani Spence. Our engineers: is Andrew Melton. Our interns are Morgan Barber and Calvin Perry. Our theme music is by Walt Matthews of Clean Cuts. Send me your thoughts about today's program to talk at steinershow.org. And uh, to podcast Mark Steiner's show, share it with your friends visit us on the web at steinershow.org. Listen to us via your favorite podcasting app and learn more at soundbitesradio.org. If you're source for cool jazz and more, WEAA, 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. I'm Mark Steiner. Take care.